The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to continue our journey together through uh, 1 John. We've titled this series, as most of you know by now, uh, Up Close and Personal, and that's because uh, that was the type of relationship that John, who is the author of these letters, had with Jesus. He had an up-close and personal relationship with the Master, and it's clear um, that the leadership style he had with those whom God had entrusted him to shepherd was also that way, that he was very personal with those whom whom God had asked him to uh, be a leader for, and... uh, and we're going to see that even in this opening verse. And so, again, we're in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 18. I'm going to read all the way uh, to 29, okay? So we're going to end this chapter, and uh, then we'll, we'll come back through and, and pick it apart and see what the Lord will say to us, okay? So we're, let's start in verse 18 and read together. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, and the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just that it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Amen. Uh, So we're going to start in verse 18. Um, Again, we see uh, John address those whom he's writing to as children, so we see his fatherly tone again coming through uh, and his affection for those whom he leads. Uh, The next thing he says is that it's the last hour. Um, I want you to remember that. We're going to come back to it later because this theme is picked up towards the end of the chapter, and we're going to deal with it then, okay? Uh, Moving on from there, it says, uh, it's the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So here we see the word Antichrist, and it's, it's important to note that only in John's uh, letters is, is this character called by this name. It's the only place we'll see him called Antichrist. Um, in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, he's referred to as the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction. Uh, in, in the book of Daniel, he's referred to as the little horn uh, and he's also referred to as the beast in Revelation. All the same guy, but here we see him referred to as Antichrist. Um, and many hear the word Antichrist and they think, and I understand why, they think like opposite 
of Jesus, Antichrist. So they think like Jesus was super good, and so this guy is going to be super evil. So they think Antichrist. They think like uh, you know, like a half man, half goat. You know, that's that's all red. And, and real mean and angry and evil looking, and he shows up, and he's got a tattoo gun in his hand, and he's ready to tat 666 on your forehead. Um, many, they, they think Antichrist, that's, that's what they envision. Um, the reality is, based on scriptural description and the deceptive way that our enemy tends to work, the Antichrist will likely be a very popular, either political or religious leader, uh, who appears uh, towards the end, and, and and at least at first, he's going to probably appear to be the savior of the world. Uh, think less opposite Jesus and more instead of Jesus. Uh, more, more deceptive, not so obvious. Very rarely does Satan work in, in real obvious ways. He always tries to come around the backside, tricking us, deceiving us. And uh, most of what the Bible has to say would lead us to believe that <clears throat> it will not be real obvious from the beginning that the Antichrist is the Antichrist, but that the world will probably look to him and be pretty enamored with him. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, uh, what many do, however, is they waste their time uh, anti-Christ hunting uh, among major players on the world stage in any given time. This has happened for a long time. People have continued to look at those prominent figures and whatever their, their era is and, and try to pick out who the anti-Christ might be. So common folks that they'll try to pin that on would be uh, presidents and popes and other influential people. They're often declared to be the Antichrist by guys with uh, an internet connection and way too much time on their hands. Um, so what they'll do is they'll spend all their time studying and obsessing the little bit on what the little bit is that the Bible says about the Antichrist instead of focusing on the mountain of truth that we have about the real Christ. Uh, and the best way to be pre prepared and not deceived by the Antichrist is to know Jesus and his word. That's the best way. It's not, it's not try to dig into the scriptures and find every single thing you can. I'm not saying you, you can't do that, but that's not going to be the most effective way to not be hoodwinked if the Antichrist were to show up in our lifetime. The most effective way to not be hoodwinked by the lies of the enemy is to know the truth. And so your time would be better spent getting to know King Jesus than trying to think you could guess who the Antichrist is based on the vague descriptions we have from the scripture. The Bible didn't emphasize a whole lot exactly what to look for in Antichrist. Why do you think that is? Because God forgot? He didn't forget. It's not that important. If you know Jesus, you're not going to be tricked. Amen? Amen. Amen. Truth wins. Hallelujah. Uh, you know, some of you could be rolling your eyes and saying, you know, here we go again with this guy, and you got to know the word. Yeah, we get it. But here's my thing. Seriously. You know, if some guy stands up and, and, and he's popular, but then he starts saying stuff like, you know, I, I know you guys like me, but I'm, I'm to the level of awesomeness that you should, you should worship me. If, if you know your Bible and you know the real Jesus, you're, there's not, you're not even, it's not going to take a minute of your time to even try to have to think through that, right? Automatically, you will know, no, I will not do that. There's only one God, only one worthy of worship, that's Jesus. I don't know if you're the Antichrist, but you're either off your meds or something's wrong, brother. Because that's not true. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's why we got to know the word. Uh, so let's continue here in the verses. And it says, even now many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Um, most Bible scholars agree there will be an antichrist who rises up. There will be a figure that is being described here in, in other places throughout the scriptures. Uh, but there will also be other less influential 
antichrists and false prophets, uh, and it seems that they're going to become more frequent and bold as time goes on. And I think uh, if you pay attention to what's going on on the world stage at, at large, you'll know that this is true. I think one example that's prominent now, and, and I don't know how many of you have heard this name, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Jesus de Miranda, uh, and here's his deal. Uh, he claims he had a vision in 1973. Uh, don't take this all the way to the bank. You have to do more research. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, if somebody finds this out. I think he was in jail as a drug trafficker when this happened, which lends to the credence of what I'm about to say. Apparently, while all that was going on, he had a vision while, while that was going on in 1973. And, and apparently, Jesus came and uh, integrated with him. That's the word. Uh, and now he's the second coming of Christ. And so here's the deal. What that means to him is he claims his teachings supersede Christ, supersede the scriptures, and that people should worship him instead. And you know what is unbelievable? Dude has a ton of followers. There's a ton of people that apparently hadn't cracked the Bible open enough. You could not have read a whole lot of this and should be able to figure out that guy's gone awry. Yes or no? Way off! I think this guy's... Last time I heard he's so popular, he's got his own satellite in space. Somebody was dumb enough to give enough money so this guy could fly a satellite. Will you guys donate enough money to have a gun big enough that I can shoot it down? <laughs> Get together on that, okay? Dear Lord in heaven, somebody standing up and saying, I'm the next coming of Christ. Yes, I had a vision. I've integrated. all. Now the scriptures are, are null and void. You should listen to me. How can that happen? Only in the midst of an incredible lack of knowledge of the Bible. This is why I push you towards these scriptures, because I love you, and I want you defended from dumb stuff like that. Not everyone will be so overtly ridiculous as that. See, all the best lies are woven with some truth. And so we need to know exactly what these scriptures say, especially as time moves on. Okay? He, that guy is not the first nor the last of his kind. Uh, verse 19, let, let's read that together. Uh, it says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not, that they, are, they all are not of us. I want to call our attention to um, how many of the biggest names in entertainment and especially in music, start out claiming to be Christians and either completely abandon that claim or it turns into some like twisted, unbiblical, and perverted offshoot of the Christianity that they originally identified with. Think about it. Almost, I can think of a lot of very influential, very popular musicians, actors, people that our celebrity culture holds up high, as they started, they at least claimed some connection to God in the Bible. And as things moved on and as things went forward, that got weird. Um, and here's my thing. Please don't be naive. If you don't think that Satan is at work in the entertainment industry, then you can't possibly be paying attention. And it's no coincidence that many of those who claimed to be Christians initially and at the first part of their career, that they are catapulted into the highest levels of, flame, of fame and influence, where they can then publicly renounce their faith, either through their confession or their actions or both. 
I don't think it's a coincidence that you find many names, if you think about it, that they would have said if interviewed early on, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a Christian, whatever that means, right? But, but still, it's there. And so for the non-discerning person, that, that, that's there. And then they watch that person go from there and be, and be catapulted into the, the spotlight and how that life either, how it's made to look as if they, you know, they've self-destructed because of the fame or else they've just, now that they've gotten famous enough to get smart, now they're enlightened beyond that Christianity they used to claim. And what message does that send to the person that is not discerning, that doesn't have the Holy Spirit, doesn't know their Bible? It could, it could throw them for a loop. I'll give you an example. Um, there was a man who recently, uh, when receiving a Grammy, uh, his statement was, I want to thank God a little bit. Okay? You might think that, look, you might think that's no big deal. Listen to me right now. That's, that's, what's being said there is, I deserve most of the credit for this. I'm, I'm going to throw God a little bone here. And, and honestly, I think it's even more and deeper than that. If you, if you really want to get down to it, but I, I probably can't do that here. The reality is, that's not okay. And maybe you do or maybe you don't know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to go into names, but both he and his wife started out, or currently today, would tell you they have some connection to God and his Bible, but instead of glorifying Jesus with the gifts they've been given, what they promote is independence and materialism and sexuality outside of the way God would describe it in the way God would command it. And they have incredible influence over some of you even, because some of you are mad that I brought this up. I love you, but you, you need to think right about that. It's not, it's not okay. You don't thank God a little bit. The only reason you're standing up there breathing is because he's king. He decided to make air, and then he decided to make you. Right? Okay. I'm not trying to start an acquire the fire style burn pit after the service, okay? How many of you are children of the 80s or 90s went to an acquire the fire? Nobody, you at least heard it before. Okay. I went to one, it was cool. So what they did is they got a coffin and they marched it around and this dude got super excited and he's like, anything you got in here that you want to put to death, come throw your sin in the coffin. So I think I had like one of those ninja stars made out of paper, but it was just like so cool. I wanted to throw something in the coffin, so I ran up there and threw that in. Um... <laughs> Only God knows what they ended up finding in the coffin. I, I, you know, it's cool. Amen. I, I'm sure some people were blessed by that, but um, that's, not, that's not what I'm trying to do here. Um, I don't want you to take all your you know, secular stuff and burn it. That's not the point I'm driving at. I'm, I'm pleading with you to not be naive. I'm pleading with you, listen to me, to not be naive as it pertains to the schemes of our enemy. We've got to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And the influence of celebrity culture is one of the most pervasive and effective tools the enemy has in 2014. The influence that flows from that, it affects the way that we think and affects the way our culture thinks. Now, the overcorrection here would be to smash your TV and smash all your radios and wear earmuffs when you go into public so that none of that devil music reaches your eardrums, right? That would be the overcorrection. That's not what we're advocating for here. Uh... We talked last week about living in this world but not being of this world. That can be a very difficult line and balance to strike, yet it is what we're called to as Christians, okay? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this, and, and you know, some of you aren't going to like it, but here we go. Um, 
I'm gonna. Um, I, uh, I oftentimes will, I'll watch shows, for example, I'll give you an example, like uh, Family Guy, I'll watch that show sometimes, and here's why, because most of the comedy of that show is a social critique about different individual parts of our culture, and, and some of you, your conscience doesn't allow you to watch Family Guy, because it deeply offends you when they make fun of God or Christians, and I say amen to that. And you should absolutely adhere to what your conscience says about that. If you don't feel good about it, then do not do, not do it. I will tell you this. I watch Family Guy because when they make fun of God and Christians, I want to understand what is it they're thinking. Why is it that they're getting a laugh out of that? How, do we deserve it? Is there parts of what they're making fun of that maybe is accurate and it's something that we can correct on our side? I'm not, I'm not sitting there going, ha, 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 that's funny, they just made fun of God, but I think in some ways it helps me to be a missionary to the culture that I'm around because they're watching it, okay? And different people are going to have different conviction levels on that. My, my encouragement to you would be to go to Romans. If you're offended that I watch that, go to Romans and read what Paul has to say about how to deal with conviction. Some of you, it would really bother you to even be in a room where that's on. Some of you have no conviction about it for sinful reasons because you just don't care. That's not okay either. You hear me? You don't say, oh, Pastor Vince said he watches Family Guy. Don't, don't go run with that. Now I can watch whatever I want. No, no, no. If I'm sitting there watching it, I'm thinking. Half the time I'm praying, Lord, what is he saying right there? What, what was that joke about? Why did they say that? So I want to understand. How are the people around me that I'm called to reach, how are they thinking? And, and other shows are like that. I'm just using that one as an example. And one that I thought would make some of you mad. So that's good. I like to shake you up every once in a while. So there you go. Uh, I, I will turn on local radio stations sometimes with the most popular music. Um, I'll do that every so often. And it's just, I want to hear what it is the people in our culture are, are listening to. I want to hear it. And no, I'll be honest with you. Normally I don't last very long because either I get upset or disgusted by what I'm hearing. This is the God's honest truth. I'll think, okay, let me, let me flip over here and see what's on. Um, and a lot of times I end up so frustrated, I just turn it off altogether. But I think it's valuable to understand what are the things being communicated through that music. Uh, again, it helps me to be a better missionary to those that I'm called to reach. I want to hear the messages they're receiving. I want to hear the lies they're being told so I can prepare myself with prayer and with God's word to speak truth to combat those lies. What, is, what are the most popular songs on the billboard charts? What messages are they conveying to the people around us? Again, some of us, you, so again, you might know the radio station I'm talking to, that, that, or talking about. That doesn't mean you can say, oh, Pastor Vince said he listens to that. Cool. Off I go. And just go ahead and take it in like everybody else and not have a spiritual filter about what you're listening to. Don't be naive about the fact that that stuff has influence over you. Again, I'm not trying to get you to burn everything that doesn't have a cross or a fish on it. I'm asking you to not be naive. Understand, the enemy works through these things to exert influence, affect the way we think, okay? This is the truth whether you like it or not. You know I love you enough to, to give it to you straight, okay? More often than not, uh, these folks are, are incredibly talented, those that are producing either TV shows or music uh, that we're discussing, and so I know, I know that the beat is good. I get that. And that would be how some of you would push back against us. You'd say, oh, 
all Christian music is terrible, but, and, and you know, the, beat is, the beat is so good on this song or that song. Listen, I, I get it, and I know that some of you feel like I'm talking like a fundamentalist, but I'm no fun at all. Um, I get that. I'm not picking on any type of music, and I'm, I'm not even saying that you shouldn't listen to them. I'm simply saying, don't be naive. I want you to understand there's a message in every song. There's a point to every lyric, and I just want you to be really aware when those messages are against Christ and the Word. I want you to be aware of that because it'll help equip you. When, when you hear come out of somebody's mouth that same sentiment or idea, you'll have some idea of understanding where, where maybe that came from, and you'll be prepared, hopefully, by prayer and, and, and the study of God's Word to have an answer to that. When, when, when music and entertainment puts forth this idea that Marriage doesn't really matter. It's just a piece of paper. God doesn't care. You can be married in God's eyes. I'm just, I'm just picking one of the millions of lies that are put forth all the time. You, you as a Bible-believing Christian, you should understand, hold on, no, that's not true. God looks at marriage as a covenant. That's the same word he used to describe what Jesus did on the cross. It's a real serious deal. It's way more than a piece of paper. That's the littlest of all the details. We're talking about a covenant here. Right? Truth. To defeat a lie. The other part is having the boldness to speak up when somebody says that. We have to be convinced that the most loving thing we can do sometimes is challenge somebody. See, one of the greatest lies being sold to us today is that tolerance is the highest form of love. To let everybody think what they think and not encroach upon their subjective opinion. That's not loving. Okay, because if you somehow come to believe that smashing yourself in the head with a hammer over and over is a super good idea, I should love you enough to come disagree with you. Amen? Will you please come disagree with me if I, if I decide that, you know, playing on 75 is, is the most fun thing I could ever do? Like, that's my new high and thrill in life. Please come talk to me, disagree with me, love me enough to say, hey, Brother Vince, that's, that's not a super good idea. You, you might be harming your life by thinking this way. Amen? That's a real ridiculous, you know, over example. However, with spiritual things, man, people are doing that all the time. They're deciding that, you know, marriage is for chumps and I should just go out here and do whatever I want with whoever I want. That's, I'd rather play on 75 than live like that. And not just because of STDs. <laughs> Ooh, did he say that? Yes. Not just because of that, but because of the deep spiritual ties that come from that. The, the fact that it, it hurts the heart of God every time I sin that way. Yep, that was fun, wasn't it? Okay, we'll move on. That wasn't in the notes. That was an extra special little treat just for everybody, so enjoy. Okay. Um, one thing we need to say and make sure, because listen, man, we believe in God's grace. There is room for people to struggle. Um, if you look at these verses, verse 19, sometimes people will get a little overzealous, uh, and if somebody trips and stumbles in their walk with Christ, maybe they're not around for a while when it comes to the gathering of God's people. They want to pull this verse out, this verse, and, and just start hammering. Um, there is room for people to struggle along their journey with Jesus. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son shows us this for sure. We understand that we are all still imperfect. The, the hope is that each day I'm getting less prone to sin. It's not that, it's not that ever in, in my Christian walk am I going to become sinless like Jesus, but I sh the hope is that I should sin less as I keep walking with him. As I know him more, as I know his voice more, as I become more like him. That's that's the Christian walk, so we have to be encouraged in that. It doesn't mean we don't struggle and strive and sometimes fail. Um, however, I think what's being talked about here is if someone abandons God and his people, 
to serve the world and themselves and they do not return, their claim uh, as a Christ follower is false. Uh, and this is one of those scriptures that puts a big rain cloud over the don't judge parade. You know that, the one where everyone's got the floats and the banners that say, don't judge me, don't judge me, only God can judge me. If you really understood God's judgment, you'd really wish I would judge you instead of God. Um, so that just tells me right off the bat you haven't read much Bible. But secondly, um, the don't judge me parade needs to shut down, okay, because it's, it's dumb. And this, this verse uh, really reigns on that parade. So a lot of times what somebody will say, I, I've heard this sentiment over and over, you can't judge me. You know, yeah, I'm not a part of God's family that's the church. You know, I don't serve, or I don't sacrifice, I, I don't give towards the mission, I, I don't obey God's word, but, but, but God knows my heart. I love God. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you loved him, you'd obey his commandments and be in fellowship with his people. Period. Some of you are uncomfortable with that. And some of you say, Pastor Vince, you're judging them. You're judging them. Yep. And I'm biblical for doing so. Absolutely. You don't believe me? We don't even have to go far. You probably don't even have to turn the page. Let's just, we're, we can say in the same chapter, let's shoot back down to verses 3 and 4 real quick because it's important because this don't judge me deal, some of you have got that on you. You need to understand that the, the judgment of the, the, the critique and, and the accountability and judgment that comes from brothers and sisters in Christ is a gift to you. You should desire that in your life because that is a safety valve that should hopefully stop you before you get to that end judgment from God. You don't want God's judgment. You might think that's what you want. That's not what you want. You need to hang out some more time and read about what God's judgment looks like. It's, it's much better for you for me to stop you and say, I love you. I'm making a judgment right now based on the verses that you're walking outside of the character of Christ. And for us to be able to talk about that, for you to repent, us pray together, and then we keep marching on with Jesus. That's beautiful. That's seeing the gospel walked out. That's part of what church family is for, and you should be happy when somebody's got the guts to do that for you. Instead, what we do is, don't judge me. I want to live in the shadows. I want to do the darkness thing. Walking in the light doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Shame isn't comfortable. And so I'll wait. You know, only God can judge me. I promise you that's a bad plan. I promise you that's a bad plan. Okay, so we're in chapter 2. Let's just look at this real quick. By this we know that we have come to know him. What is it, Love City, if we... Keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him. Here's the deal. Here's what I just said. I've got my own special thing with God. I love God. He knows my heart. He, hold on, but what do the scriptures say? The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Hold on. You don't know their heart. You can't judge if they're a liar. Yes, I can. If they say they don't love God, if they say they love God and they're not keeping his commandments on, on a habitual and, and rebellious basis, then yes, there's no, there, there's no validity to their confession. Something's off, something's wrong. And that doesn't mean I get to jump on them. I'm not talking about judgment in, in, in the sense that now I'm thrilled that I caught you and, and now I get to celebrate in the fact that, you know, no, my heart should be broken over my sin and your sin because what I believe is that being in obedience to God is where joy and hope and, and the, the life that, what, uh, that, that God really wants for us, where that's found is in obedience to him. That's what I want for you. That's what we should want for each other. 
And so it should, there should be no joy in noticing that maybe somebody's struggling and being called by God to be the person to step in and make a judgment on that. There's, it's not joyous. It's painful for everybody. But it's necessary. Right? You see me playing on 75, throw a rock, do what you got to do, get my attention, and help me, okay? We need to do that for each other spiritually. All right? Amen. All right, uh, we're, gonna, we're in verses, verse 20 now. We're going to read uh, 20 through 24, okay? But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. Okay? First off, in verse 20 it says, but you, uh, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. Okay? And when people start talking about anointing, uh, it can get real weird real quick. Uh, I need you to hear and understand that I'm very comfortable with the gifts of the Spirit, uh, and I believe they're in full operation today. That is Love City's position. We believe God, is the, the, the Holy Spirit and His gifts are still in operation in the church today. We need them. Amen. We need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Yes and amen. Uh, however, people can quickly get over-fixated on what they perceive to be an anointing pinata that they can whack with a faith stick and get all kinds of goodies. That's not, that's not the point. Here's the thing. We are promised the anointing uh, in Acts 1.8. The anointing is simply, to understand it, it's the equipping of the Holy Spirit. That is what the anointing is. It's the equipping of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the next question, logically, is for what? What, is, what are we being equipped to do? Okay, here's what Acts says. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then what does he say you're going to do? So that you can be my witnesses to Samaria, Judea, and all the ends of the earth. Right, so that we can be witnesses of Jesus Christ. Not so we can do whatever else. We're empowered to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus. What does John say about it? He says uh, that here, that we, we're given anointing so that we can discern the truth, that we can stand for the truth, and so that the truth will abide in us, so that we may abide in the Father. These are some of the primary jobs of the Holy Spirit as He anoints us and He equips us to be the church. And again, this is part of why we see that, be, that gospel centrality in, in ministry is so crucial. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, and it is the main point of all we do. And it's so, see, the Antichrist and and. And the enemy is so good at getting our attention diverted to these other auxiliary things, not even that they're necessarily bad, but if we get the focus off onto the anointing and what we, something else we think the anointing can do other than... Li- Here's what the Holy Spirit does primarily. He came to the earth to exalt Jesus. This is what the Christian believer does when operating correctly and doing what it is that we're called to do. We exalt Jesus. Here's what the Word does. Genesis to Revelation exalts Jesus. If that's not happening, if that's not clearly happening, I'm not talking about somewhere out on the fringes, maybe his name was mentioned. I'm talking about clear centerpiece, highest thing being held up, Jesus and his gospel, then we're out of order. Something's gotten messed up. You believe that? Amen. That's the truth about it. Jesus should be held high. Everything I do and say should point to him and his glory. 
everything we do in the church. And clearly, if the Holy Spirit's in it, Jesus will be exalted. It's part of how you know. If a man's being exalted, we messed up. If the gift is being exalted instead of Jesus, we messed up. We've gotten out of order. Okay? Verse 25. This is the promise which he himself made to us. Eternal life. Next time you're sad, let me commit to you. 1 John 2, 25. In the midst of all the darkness, the difficulty of this life, all the pressure, at the end of the day, here's what i got to remember. His promise to me is eternal life. If you're not excited about that, shake yourself, because you should be. That this isn't it, man. That for those of us that have put faith in Christ, this is as bad as it gets. Yeah, this is an awesome weekend. I had a great time. Spent a bunch of time with my kids, out in the sunshine. It's not even that bad, but this is as bad as it gets. My promise is eternal life with the king in his glory, man, in a place where we don't have to have a sun because his face is so bright. That's our promise. Excited about it. Verse 26 and 27. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. John is dealing here. You see much of what he's writing. It's rebuttal to false teaching and teachers, and they're trying to present a different truth than what this church already knew. And what we know that he's not saying, which you may have saw in verse 27, uh, those of you that don't like the idea of authority, uh, is that teachers are obsolete. You may have seen him say there, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. See, we know that every single Christian, because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, that's a part of the salvation process, that we have the Holy Spirit. So you could read that and say, oh, okay, I have the Holy Spirit, I have the anointing, I have no need for a teacher. I am now super Christian and need no authority, need no one over me, need no one to teach me the Bible. Here's, I'll give you two reasons why we know that's not what John is saying, okay? And there's probably more, but here's two. What is John doing in writing this letter to this church, this group of people whom he loves? He's teaching them. Teaching them a bunch of stuff that they need to know. Reteaching them things that they need to emphasize. So John is teaching in the very writing of this letter. That's not what he's saying is that teachers are no longer needed. We also know because of Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 tells us that teachers are a gift to the body of Christ. And what, what they're commissioned to do is to help equip the saints for the service and the work of the ministry. And so uh, John's not going to go and contradict uh, what is said there in Ephesians and say, oh, well, you got the Holy Spirit, you don't need teachers. Of course we do. We all do. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know, you can always benefit from sitting underneath the teaching of the Scriptures. Um, that's every leader and every teacher included. And if anybody ever decides that they're beyond that, they, they've probably gotten in pride and they should, they should step down and, and, and uh, check themselves. Okay? What John is saying here is that you have no need for someone to come teach you something new. If you notice how he's structuring what he's saying, the appeal he keeps making is, what he keeps saying is, you know the truth. You know the truth. You know the truth. You don't need somebody to come teach you some new thing. You know what's true. And the anointing is going to give you the power to, to abide by that, to stand for that, to, to live in that truth and, and rejoice in it. That is what John's getting at. Because there were these guys coming along, these antichrists, these false prophets, trying to tell these people, look, there's this and that. Here's another way. There's an easier way. There's a more exciting way than what John and the other apostles have already taught you. Come listen to us. Come, 
come follow after us. John's saying, no. You don't have any need of those teachers. Those guys are garbage and they're liars. Anybody who's going to say anything about Jesus other than what we've told you, that he is the Son of God, that he is Messiah, Christ and King, get away from them. Let the anointing empower you to stand in the midst of those lies being thrown out. Remember the truth that you've already been told. You have no need of those teachers. Amen? Amen. He's saying stick with the truth of the gospel and live it out instead of getting excited about somebody coming along claiming to have a new or better or easier way. And that's honestly why I don't care how tired some folks get of hearing the plain, simple gospel here at Love City. I know there's a point in almost every sermon where I start, and you could probably pick it up and and you could preach it from there because what I'm going to do is explain very simply what the good news of the gospel is. And here, it's a, a wretched, terrible, prideful attitude to check out when that begins, and here's why. The gospel to the Christian should be the most beautiful sound in all of creation. There should not be any instrument that could be strummed or blown in or banged upon that should be able to stimulate your heart in the way that the pure, beautiful gospel does, because for us, it is the good news. There's a lot of good news. It was good news on Thursday when I found out it wasn't going to rain Saturday, because I knew it was going to be home, hanging out with my kids, we could go outside. That's good news. That's not the good news. The good news tells me that though I was broken and separated from, deservedly separated from the God that made me because of my sin, that Jesus came and made a way, bridged the gap between us, took my sin upon himself and shed his blood in my place. That's good news. That's good news. It trumps the bad news that I had no hope. That's where I was at. No hope. None. Dead men don't save themselves. They stay what? Dead. That's why Jesus had to come. Hallelujah! I'm still excited about the good news. Never gets old. Hallelujah. We should abide in, live in, and through the truth of the gospel, and there should be no sweeter sound to us than it. It's a declaration of freedom from sin and death through faith in Christ and his finished work. It is a major sign of immaturity and danger when being anointed to protect and preach this precious gospel is not exciting or spiritual enough for people. Do you hear what I said? When excitement for the gospel is absent, the Antichrist spirit can secure a foothold. When we're no longer excited about the gospel, when we are not stimulated by the pure good news of the gospel, when we, our, our hearts are no longer touched, when it's become a common thing, that's, that's where there's room for false teaching to come in. That's where room for distraction can come in. When we are so full of vibrant excitement about Jesus and his finished work and the fact that we get to now be a part of that work. He started a mission. I know he said is it finished at the cross. And so his work at the cross, yes, was finished. But a mission was also being started. And now 2,000 years later, he's inviting us to get in on it. You can be a part of that continuing mission to let people know they no longer need to stay dead in their sins. That they can be free because of the finished work of Christ. How, I mean, do you, are you aware that you have a desire inside of you to be bigger than, than something other than just the mundane day-to-day stuff that we're a part of? I mean, some of you, you're, you're so wrapped up in the rat race, you, you can't even really see the light of day anymore. But some of you stop and you look around sometimes, you're like, what is this all for? Some of you stop and look around, you're like, what, why even do this? Because if, if this is all there is, it's not even worth continuing. But that is what the purpose of being a part of this gospel mission, it pulls us up out of that. It makes 
All the mundane things have deep purpose that can affect eternity. If you go, I don't care if your job is to screw a little nut on a bolt on a piece in a factory every day. If you do that unto God for his glory and you're looking for the opportunity to talk to the person next to you screwing a a nut on a bolt about the hope of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden that mundane activity becomes a part of an eternal mission. I don't care what we're doing. We're a part of the king's army, man. We're a part of, of the, the, the family of God. And we hold with us the, the greatest and most precious truth that's ever been told. He's trusted us with that. Sometimes I wonder, because I know me, and I know some of you, and I love you, but if I was God, I think sometimes I would have trusted angels or somebody seeming a little more responsible with the message of the gospel. You know what I'm talking about? Because sometimes we're prone to not act like it's that important. Sometimes we're prone to get excited about other stuff. Look, man. Bump all that. we got to get first things first. Gospels of, of primary and first importance, always in all things. Amen. Uh, all right, verse 28 and 29. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also practices righteousness is born of him. Okay, if you remember, verse 18 references the last hour, and verse 28 says, uh, when he appears. And so these scriptures, this language, they both lead us to, I believe, a necessary look at something called eschatology. And what that means is it's the study of last things. Okay, and so kind of what's going to go on as all of things wind to a close, that's known as eschatology. Uh, and this is, on, this is one area of theology and doctrine that has caused a lot of separation and division throughout the church, throughout her history. And, and I want to say emphatically, in the beginning of this, that this is an open-hand topic for us, right? We have closed-hand topics. We have topics and subjects that there's no discussion to be had. Is the Bible the Word of God? Yes. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Is Jesus the only way to heaven by faith in his finished work? Yes. No question, if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Now, flip over here. Um, you know, exactly how do tongues work and where should all that happen as far as gifts of the Spirit and different stuff? There's room for discussion. You can believe a couple different things about that, still be a Christian, and, you know, God will sort it out when we get to heaven. Um, this is one of those areas, and it's open hand for us, and that means we, we can believe different things about the specifics as long as the essentials are in place, okay? And so here's what I'm going to do. Because it's, it's brought up here, uh, I don't want to just skim over it. I want to give you a brief overview of the prevailing ideas of how things are going to go in what's referred to here as the last hour or what is commonly referred to as the end time. Some of you are looking at your clock and you're worried. I promise you I'm going to do this quick, okay? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, it's going to be very brief. So the first of four, okay, is known as historic premillennialism. And some of you that amount of syllables causes you to check out. Don't worry about that. I don't care if you remember it. Just remember the ideas, okay? Because I'm, I'm not real big on big words either. So uh, historic premillennialism, this was pretty much, it was the only end times model among early church fathers with the accept of a guy, uh, or exception of a guy named Origen, but he didn't really offer uh, a good alternative. And so for a long time, what was believed as far as how the timeline of events would go, the overarching like from the cross onwards, would be that the cross would happen, then we would have something called the church age. That's where we find ourselves now. It's the time between the cross and the time of Jesus' return, known as the church age. It's the time where we get our mission done. Okay, so 
they believed that the cross would happen, we'd have the church age, then there would be a seven-year tribulation, okay? Some of you are aware of that. You've heard that language. Some of you don't know. There are some that believe, and there's variants about how all that goes down even, but that there's going to be seven years of difficulty, judgment, uh, part of it being a time of Satan's wrath, some of it being a time of God's wrath, but they believed it would be church age, tribulation, that after the tribulation there would be a rapture or a, a, a taking away of God's people, that they would meet God in the air, that they would be changed into their glorified state, and they would immediately return with Christ to the earth for a thousand-year or millennial reign. So all of these millennialisms I'm going to talk about, really that's just a reference to that thousand years that the Bible talks about. So historic premillennialism, the first church fathers, they believed it was church age, tribulation, rapture, They'd be caught away and then brought directly back for a thousand-year millennial reign. The next is called amillennialism. And so uh, this is a model put forth by Augustine. Um, In in Greek, a word is negated by putting an A in front of it. So amillennialism is really like saying no millennium. Uh, And it's, it's a little bit misleading because proponents of this idea, they do believe there's a millennium. They just believe it's Christ's rule over the church now, that we are in the millennial reign now. Uh, and that the thousand years talked about in the scriptures is, is more figurative. It's not an actual amount of time. Uh, so they believe there's no literal earthly millennium and no eternity on a new earth. So the way they would believe it would be you got church age, coming of Christ, everyone goes straight to heaven. Not a whole lot about a tribulation, no second coming. It's probably the simplest one. If you like simple, you don't necessarily care what's right, just go for that one. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, so you got amillennialism there, postmillennialism. <clears throat> Excuse me. This was developed in the mid 1600s by a Unitarian uh, minister. Uh, his name was uh, Daniel Whitby, and uh, it was immediately dubbed post millennialism because it envisioned a return of Jesus after or post a literal thousand year reign uh, of the church over all the earth. So th- th- you got to pay attention here to track with the small differences. So here's what a post millennialism. Uh, proponent would believe that we have the church age, so like where we are now, the church would keep growing, but then we would enter into a golden age where the church would have such influence worldwide, politically, and in every way, that we would, it would come to a place where when the scriptures describe God is reigning, that, that, that we would essentially, by fulfilling God's mission, we would reach this golden age of influence, and for a thousand years, Jesus would reign through the church on this planet. So I would say, you know, if you believe this, then you're not thinking probably that the return of Christ is imminent, because uh, I wouldn't say we've started the, the, uh, the whole church having such influence that it could be said that Christ is the king of this whole world. Do you understand what I'm talking about? It, it doesn't seem to be headed, heading that way, as far as I can tell. Um, so that you would have this golden age, thousand years, uh, and then Jesus would come. So after that thousand year reign, Jesus would come take us to heaven. Okay, that's post-millennialism. So we had historical pre-millennialism as the first one. That's a lot of thing or letters to say. Modern premillennialism. Okay, so this is <clears throat> the one that probably most of you are, are most familiar with. And what it says, this model became prominent in the early 1800s, uh, primarily out of some theologians from England. It's often criticized for being too new to be true. That's what a lot of guys will say. Uh, However, many who are proponents of this idea would point to Daniel 12.4 and Jeremiah 30.24, which seem to indicate that understanding 
our understanding regarding prophecy may increase as we get closer to the end. So there are some theologians that say if, if something's new as far as an idea about interpreting the scriptures, it's not true. Uh, and I think generally I agree with that. I'm not totally sure as it pertains to prophecy, if that's accurate. Um, <clears throat> so here's what a modern premillennialist believes, that we will have the church age, that we're, so we'll have the, the cross will happen, church age that we're in now, that there will be a rapture, so that word's not in the scriptures, but that means a, a taking away, so that uh, Jesus will come and get us, essentially, take those of us that are Christians to heaven. There will then be a seven-year tribulation. Uh, after that, there will be a second coming where Jesus returns with the church, and at that point, the saints then begin a millennial or thousand-year reign on the new earth. Uh, that was a lot. I get that, and I don't expect you to remember that. What I'm doing is exposing some of you to the, the fact for the very first time that there's different ideas about that, and really all I want to do is kind of prod you to go and study for yourself, because some of you are thinking, okay, well, you gave us the four options. Which one is right? Uh, I, I would say with deep conviction that this is one of the areas of doctrine that, that we look in a glass dimly. This is not something that is spelled out so clearly in the scriptures that I think it's very wise to be real dogmatic about it. I, I, I have some ideas about how I think things are going to go, but I'd rather spend my time uh, thinking about how I'm doing with the mission right now. <laughs> Um, you're welcome to believe any of these positions as long as it comes out of earnest prayer and study. I, I believe all four of these are, are within orthodoxy, and this is a subject that uh, is, is not something that needed to be, needs to be divided over. So you could be um, you know, a historical premillennialist, and I could be an amillennialist, and we could have lunch together and love Jesus and, and shout each other down and say hallelujah, okay? Um, you understand what I'm saying about that? It's not something to get in big fights about. Listen, there's enough people attacking the very fact that this is the word of God or that Jesus is king, that we should focus all of our time and abilities on, on debate, on trying to figure out how to answer those questions as opposed to bickering with each other about how it's going to go. Look, it's going to pan out. I'm more focused on us making disciples right now and accomplishing the mission that God gave us while we got time to do it. Okay? Okay. Uh, what is way more important than the specifics of the timeline for the end are the details that everyone agrees on. Here, here's, here's the one detail. It doesn't matter which one of those models you believe as far as eschatology goes. Here's what everyone agrees on. He's coming. The king is coming. It doesn't matter which one you believe. You believe he's coming. And that should cause us to have a certain reaction. I don't care if you're premillennial, postmillennialist. No millennials, I don't care if you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, no-trib, I don't care. The sober reality is, he's coming. We need to live in light of that. And when he does, he will either, we will either stand in confidence because we've abided and obeyed in Christ or we're going to shrink away in fear and shame, knowing that judgment and reckoning for our wickedness has arrived. There's two options given here. We can either stand in confidence when he comes, or we can shrink away in shame. I really want every single one of you to be able to stand in confidence, not because you think you've done a good job, but because you know Jesus did everything necessary for you to be able to do that. His shed blood and his finished work on the cross purchased righteousness for you that you didn't deserve, but that you've been walking that out, that you've been proving that, that the love that God 
went first and in, in, in loving you that it's penetrated your heart, that it's caused change, that you've been obeying his commandments, not to earn his love, but because you know how much he loves you. You want to please a father like that. Meditating on the Lord's return is a great way to assess where you are at with him. If thinking that he could return at any moment brings you anything but a smile to your face and hope to your heart, you may be in trouble. You hear what I said? Thinking about the fact that he could return at any moment, it should bring a, a, a smile to our face and hope to our heart. If not, we might be in trouble. Either you're in sin and rebellion and you know it, or you've become too attached to this world. If the imminent return of Christ does not cause joy for you, Christian, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, the imminent return of Christ should not cause you joy. It should cause you to seriously consider the way that you're headed. I love you, but i got to tell you the truth. I'm a Bible man. I, listen, I know not everybody believes the Bible these days, but I believe that this is God's word and it's true. And what it says is that there is an eternity, that what's happening here, that this is short, eternity is long, and then we're all going to spend eternity somewhere, either with God in heaven or without him in hell. And I want you to go to heaven. And what the Bible says about that is not if you do more good things than bad things, you'll make it, or that if you're better than your neighbor, you'll make it. What it says clearly is that none of us should make it, but that Jesus came and lived the perfect life we couldn't, that he died in our place for our sins, and that if you'll believe that and trust that, if you'll believe that not only did he die, but that he rose from the grave, that he was victorious over, over death and sin, that his shed blood purchased you, you could be saved today. And I invite you to that. I invite you to put your trust in Jesus. I want you to be with God forever. I want you to have joy and purpose in this life. I encourage you to join God's family. And we love you here. Our only hesitancy when we think about Jesus coming should be that we would hope for more time to tell more people about Jesus. Other than that, we should be ready to go home. Any other thing that causes us hesitance, it means that we've become too attached to something in this world. Let's be real for a minute. Here's where I'm most prone to mess up on this. I think about not getting to see my kids grow up, right? That's real. Is that real? I'm just being honest with you. If Jesus came tomorrow... I, I, don't, I don't get to see them finish growing up, but, but if, if, if I was bummed out about that, if I didn't get to the place where, actually, where I, I had joy in thinking about all of us being with, with Jesus now, then, then something is not clicking with what I say I believe. Because for all of us to go now and be with God for eternity is so much far better than anything we could pull off as an existence here on this planet. So let him come tomorrow. Let him come a thousand years from now. Either way, I should have joy. I should look forward to the day. My great hope for all of us is that if the Lord should come in our lifetime, that we would be found confident and righteous in the day of his coming. That we would not shrink away in terror at the sounding of his heavenly trumpet, but that we would raise our hands in worship and final victory. May we live in holiness and obedience as if he's coming today. And plan for spreading his gospel as if he'll wait for another thousand years. Do you understand that? That tension? Because it seems you could go either way and, and, and miscalculate. You could think, oh, I don't think he's coming. And you could, you could live sloppy. You could take advantage of grace. Or you could think, man, he's coming tomorrow. I'm, I'm just going to sit in here by candlelight and hum until he gets here. 
well, then we'd miss the opportunity to share the gospel. We have to, we have to do both. We have to walk in both Amen. and have joy about it. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the promise of eternal life. God, let this never become a common thing to us. I don't ever want to get to the point where I'm not excited about the simple thought that this is not all there is, that you've sent me here for some 80, 90, maybe 100 years to do a mission. You've sent me here, Lord, to to teach and, and share your gospel, to make disciples, to love people, to make your name known, but that this is not it. That one day the frailties of this body will pass away. All pain and sickness and suffering will be gone. And Lord, I will be able to stand in your glorious and magnificent presence. And I will be able to worship you for all eternity, uninhibited by my sin. I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day, Lord, where where I stand. and, And all that is around me is lit by your very glory. I look forward to the day that I get to be with you. God, let us please live understanding that the scriptures tell us that you're going to come like a thief in the night, that it could be today, it could be before we finish singing the songs we're about to sing. You could come. Lord, let us live with that understanding, but at the same time, let it not cause us to disengage from the mission you've given us. Lord, let us plan as if we've all got that full hundred years to keep preaching your gospel. Lord, and, and, and let us look forward to it with anticipation. I'm glad for every day you're going to give me to live in light of your word, and to share you with other people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www dot mylovecitychurch dot org